Hi, and welcome to another edition of DevOps.fm, the podcast that talks all things DevOps. I'm your host, Brian Randall, and with me is my co-host, Mickey Gousset. Each week, we work to bring you news, interviews, and discussions around DevOps topics that are relevant to you. This week's topic, DevOps housekeeping. But before we jump into the topic, let's catch up on our weeks. So Mickey, how has your week been? And in fact, how has your last two weeks been? Because we had to cancel last week because someone had a tummy ache. We did. I was not feeling great when we were supposed to record last week, so I did kind of put us off. But my past couple of weeks has been going pretty well. I've been working with a customer trying to help them make basically a decision tree of scenarios to help them decide when they should be using Azure DevOps server versus service and when they should be using GitHub Enterprise server versus service and the different things you have to take into account there. So that's been kind of an interesting interesting project to work on. I finished the book I was recording for audible.com and I have two more in the queue. So I have another one that I have to get started with. But I'll be honest, I was kind of struggling a little bit last week with just the whole being confined at home it's just kind of for you know you've probably experienced this too every once in a while you just have a day where it really just gets to you and it really just you know drags you down so i had a couple of those days but you know i did find a little epic video that brightened my day and I'll include a link to it in the show notes, but it's a little sci-fi short film called The Speed of Time. And if you like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and you like silly sci-fi time travel movies, then you will appreciate The Speed of Time. Now, now, how do you find these random things? Are you just sometimes bored and you have Google open and away you go? I watch entirely too much YouTube so YouTube knows my preferences really well, and so therefore it throws up, um, you know, in the suggestions for you. And this came up in one of my suggestions because I've been, ever since watching Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure 3, I've also been uh, uh, looking up some of the different music from the different movies and, and playing that. And so this just kind of came up as one of my, you know, suggestions for me, and they hit it right on the money. It's, 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 it's perfect. I highly suggest you watch it. But the other thing I wanted to make sure I mentioned was my GitHub tip of the week. I'm not sure. I think you need to get some new audio for that. But go ahead. Your tip of the week. So my tip of the week, we've actually mentioned before. And it's a little Easter egg that we have at GitHub where if you make a repository name that is the same name as your username, so github.com slash Mickey Gousset for me, It allows you to create a profile page for yourself, which is a special readme um, document that you can make where you can just, you know, give some bio information about yourself. Or some people have done things such as created a chess game where based off of um, the status of issues and pull requests and whatnot, it moves the pieces around on the chessboard. It's really pretty, pretty interesting. So you can actually see an example of this if you go to github.com slash Mickey Gousset. But it's just a, a nice little Easter egg that we just kind of launched, didn't tell anybody about, and let the community organically find out about it. Now, have you created a profile 
repository, Brian? No, I have to admit that my personal life and work life have kept me away from GitHub more than I thought it would in the last couple of weeks, because that has been on my list of things to do, as well as I created a new org to publish some open source stuff, but all I've done is grab the name um, and I haven't got it done. So no, I'm quite behind on some of my GitHub flair. Gotcha. Well, Brian, what's been going on with you the past couple of weeks? Well, work's been very busy to the point that this show's theme came out of some of my work. So we'll go into more detail about that in the show. Uh, On a more personal note, though, probably the two big things are my brother got married. So we dealt with his wedding and the good news is we're all still COVID free. Uh, It was quite small, uh, but it was held at a uh, restaurant. And so there was a little concern, but it was more than half of the wedding was people that are either my immediate family or my brother and his who we've seen we're not in what i would call that bubble but the point is good overall isolation and uh so that was fun i was very happy for my baby brother um yeah my brother's in his 40s so not so much a baby um and then the other thing on a personal note is as you know through the pandemic we've been doing movie themes uh having gone through the summer and done all of the James Bond movies up to the Daniel Craig ones, because we're going to start those hopefully in time for the new movie coming out. If it holds in November, uh, but we've been doing a Harry Potter. So somehow we missed doing the movies. Uh, my kids actually listened to the audible with my wife, it turns out, but, and they had watched some of the movies, but I never saw them. I'm the number one person who hasn't seen any. So we just got through this weekend, the half blood Prince. So this next weekend, we're going to do back-to-back because I don't think I can wait another week in between for the Deathly Hollows because they broke it up, I guess, into two movies. They did. They did. Now, have you read the books at all? No. No, you haven't read the books at all. Okay. So that does bring up a question I was going to ask you. I was even going to pose this on Twitter, is if you watch a movie, do you feel it's worthwhile reading the book? Now, I've done reverse many times where I've read the book. A good example is I read the book Shogun, when I was 11 or 12 and there was no way for me to watch the grand mini series because they had to come on TV. Favorite mini series of all time, by the way, really freaking time. That was one of my all time favorite mini series. So when I think about that, I would ask you then, is it worth reading the books now that I've seen the movies or is the movie captured enough of it where I might even be disappointed? What do you think? Overall, you will never be disappointed in the book as far compared to the movie. They made some changes in the movies from what's in the book based off of to ensure running time and in some cases have combined characters together that otherwise would be separate characters. But I have never been disappointed reading the book either before or after going to, to see a movie. So, yes, you definitely need to read them. Well, I think I'd enjoy that because I, I do I do believe I'm missing some of the richness of the characters and the tapestry of the story. What I found was interesting, and I noticed it myself, and I mentioned it to the kids, and they they did follow up and tell me that, yes, I was right, is that in the Order of the Phoenix, there was no Quidditch. And I'm not giving any big secrets there, right? That's one of the things, though, that was in the book, there's Quidditch. And there wasn't in that movie because of running time. They just, just decided to take it out. Um, 
so it was in Half Blood Prince that they did have some Quidditch, so it was it was fun because uh, I find that whole thing completely just maniacally lunacy. It's lunacy, really, when you think about what it is. Now, let me ask you: Have you taken the quiz to determine what house you would be in, whether you would be Gryffindor or Ravenclaw or Hufflepuff or Slytherin? I have not. Is there a, is right. this is this a Facebook thing or is this? No, I was able to find one. No, there's lots of them that are Facebook related, but my kids sent me one where um, that is not Facebook related. And um, Emma and Meg are both Ravenclaw. So what would you guess I am? I think I'm going to go random and say you're Slytherin. You're a little snaky. Wow. Nope. Nope. I am Hufflepuff. You're a Hufflepuff? I am a Hufflepuff. According to that qu- the quiz that I took. Well, if you send me the link, I will take it. And next week, dear listeners, I will tell you what house Brian would be in. All right. Let's put that in the show notes here for Mickey Forgets. Link to Harry Potter quiz. All right. We'll do it. All right. Well, enough faffing about. Let's uh, jump into the news. Uh, Mickey, I noticed when I was out on the Internet, uh, I think this was yesterday that GitHub is now officially going to replace master with main starting in October. Is that correct? That is indeed correct. And I had a little link here about that. So yeah, starting in October 1st, we're going to um, all new source code repositories that you create on GitHub will be named main instead of master. And that goes into something we've talked about several times on this show, which is removing some of the unnecessary references that we have to slavery in our technological world and replacing them with terms that are more inclusive. So, and that that is something that I am, am, am highly behind. And I've mentioned before that there's a repository out there called GitHub slash renaming, and that has all of our guidance around changing your default branch names for existing repositories. And we're actually working on, by the end of the year, having a way for you to seamlessly rename your default branch from master to something else and have it retarget all your open pull requests, your draft releases, branch protection policies, all that kind of stuff. That's excellent. Well, good to hear that. It's nice to see some action on that. And then another great piece of news coming out of the GitHub community is a tool that you're very fond of. And I remember we spent some time with this in our the last workshop we got to do this year before the pandemic, which is the GitHub CLI 1.0 is now available. Oh, the GitHub CLI is so badass. It's If you've not checked it out yet, you definitely have to go check it out. I've been playing with it since the beta. It's now um, in full release. And essentially it brings GitHub to your terminal. It runs on Windows, Mac, Linux, and allows you to do your entire GitHub workflow directly from the terminal if you want to. So you can open issues, you can respond to issues, you can close issues, you can open pull requests, you can, I mean, approve pull requests, you can, you know, you also do your standard Git stuff of branching and all that jazz. But it it's more around the fact that it works allowing you to do everything you normally used to have to go to the web browser to do in GitHub directly from the command line. It's got aliases in it, so... Um, I actually saw a presentation where the person doing the presentation was actually using the CLI 
to do the entire presentation. They had built they had built the ASCII slides on in in text files. So they'd built these like ASCII flowcharts and other stuff, and then they were using the CLI to display the appropriate file at the appropriate time. It's just it's it's really really cool. That's awesome. I, I'm always amazed at people's creativity and what they'll do. And what I find really exciting about it is it also works on GitHub Enterprise as well as GitHub Cloud. And it's open source. So you can go contribute back to it if you want to. And in fact, there's been more than 100 community contributors to the CLI that got rolled into this release. That sounds awesome. Well, the CLI is one of those tools you can use to automate repetitive tasks that you do with GitHub, which is kind of where today's topic came up. So I am actively working on a set of projects for a customer. We have uh, four distinct tools, services, products, whatever you want to call them, their internal software for them, uh, three of which are websites that then have some back-end services. And something that came up was this whole concept of housekeeping and what started it was dealing with the expiration of a password for a service account. So I thought today it'd be great to talk about those related things to an application solution that you don't deal with every day that might not even involve any source code, but are necessary to have a fully functioning production app. So what do you think, Mickey? A little bit of housekeeping talk? I like it. Let's do some housekeeping talk. What should we talk about first, Brian? Well, I think the first thing that comes to mind that a lot of people have had affect them in their lives, whether they're a developer or just a human, is the dreaded SSL certificate expiration. No, no. You've never had a problem with SSL certificates, have you, Brian? Oh, never. So um, I, I just picked one link that's in the show notes and... You know, to the Microsoft Teams team, I'm not picking on you, just it was one that popped in my head. This happened back in February of this year. And sure enough, a certificate didn't get renewed, and that meant the server and the clients were not able to communicate securely. And that's what's, I think, really significant when you think about the modern web and how pervasive the need is for security and how it affects both your browsing experience, so using Edge, Chrome, Firefox, et cetera, to access a web server, but all the client applications that route their communication to backend servers over HTTPS, which is going to require a certificate to do an effective handshake and have secure communication. So when we start thinking about a lot of these things, you'll see that there's a theme around temporal expiration, right? Things having a life cycle to where at a certain point in time, we have to reevaluate whether we need it and if we do need it to renew it, make it available. So the first thing that jumped to mind after the password that I had to update was SSL certificates. So I don't like certificates. We've had this conversation a lot. Um, but my limited experience with certificates is that, you know, obviously they expire at some point, but there was no good, there was no way, at least at the one company I worked at, how we found out they expired, honestly, is when crap started stopped working. We didn't receive a notification. We didn't, 
and I'm betting there's probably some stuff out there now that might be able to alert you when your certificate's getting close to being expired. But do you know of anything like that? You know, I didn't look anything up. I was focused more on here when I started thinking about these things was making sure that the appropriate reminders were put in place. Now, in a Microsoft-centric world, one place that would come to mind is the idea of using a team calendar out of something like SharePoint. Mm, good idea. Um, you know, and so that's was a thing. And, you know, I, I don't have a great answer because what I've been doing now is using my own personal calendar and Outlook. So for the things that I'm responsible for, I now go and create a reminder. Related to the service account, what happened was, is I had an email when we set up the service account that came from the system where we requested this, this daemon account. And the system that manages those sent us an email that says, your account has been set up, you need to manage it, et cetera, go to this link. I put a reminder on there. But here's the good news. That system, the people that built it, did a great job. It sent us a reminder and said, hey, this service account you use, it's going to need to be updated. Now, here's where the fun came in, Mickey, and leads me to another area in our topic list, is that this service account in this particular application does some work on behalf of our user's application that talks to Azure DevOps programmatically. And because it does that via an Azure function, it needs to use a personal access token to talk to it. So this is what got me thinking on this whole housekeeping thing. So the service account itself, because it is a network entity, has an identity and has its network password. Mm -hmm. But that's so it can behave and uh, do its job within the network. However... It then wants to act like a regular human and talk to Azure DevOps. And so the way it does that is what's called a personal access token, link included in the show notes. And we had to update that PAT as well. And so it just really started blowing my mind is that these are the things that developers don't want to think about, but it are often put on the ops people. But if you don't document, if you don't put reminders, things break. And yes, I 100% agree with you. And personal access tokens are their own little beast with, you know, some things you need to also just be aware of in general. Yes, you you have to potentially update those. You have to be aware that if you create a linkage, let's say between GitHub and some other third-party system like Azure DevOps or uh, Jira, and you do it using a personal access token, but you do it, say, using Brian's personal access token, and then Brian leaves to go work or leaves because he wins the lottery, then, you know, we disable Brian's account, which disables his personal access tokens. And then all of that linkage completely breaks. And then another area to consider with personal access tokens is if you're using single sign-on with GitHub, there's actually an extra step you have to go through because you have to create the personal access token and then you have to punch a button on it to enable single sign-on for it to allow it to get past the the single sign-on part of the authentication that happens. So. It is absolutely a a significant thing when we start thinking about it. So we'll include a show note because as Mickey mentioned, there's this notion of personal access tokens in the context of GitHub, and I'm sure other systems do as well. But then you bring up this issue that, okay, you've got this thing, this secret. How do you manage those? Well, in the application that we built, because it's built on top of Azure, 
we're taking advantage of Azure Key Vault as a place to store things like the PAT and other secrets that are necessary. Now, granted, whenever possible, you want to avoid having to have these secrets in place. So one way we do that with our apps is that they have access to certain resources via what's called a managed service identity in Azure. So whenever possible, don't have secrets like passwords or PATs that you have to store. But if you do, pick something secure. So I'm going to include a link in the show notes. I have not implemented this, but it's been on my list to spend time on, which is key or secret rotation, right? Which is how do you rotate in an old versus a new key and automate that toward humans that don't have to be involved. And that would, you know, that's one thing, right? When you come back to DevOps, automate all things. Mm-hmm. And the, the downside to this when you think about housekeeping is there is, on one hand, this theme that I want to automate it, but you're like, okay, if I spend time automating it and I have to spend a week or two weeks of development work, there's sometimes a, a conflict there between that mindset of automate because if it takes me two or three weeks to actually automate it properly, will we get back the value there? Can we give that value back to the company? Your boss might be saying, I can't afford to let you spend 80 man hours of work or 80 person hours of work for this thing that we can just put a reminder on the calendar and you can do every six months or whatever. So that's that's one of those things. But once again, um, automation is key. And we think about sharing secrets, right? Email's not a good way to do it. Um, the old post-it note, not a good way to do it. So definitely you'll want to have some type of tool like 1Password or LastPass, et cetera. And the cool thing about these is that both those products, and I've used both of them in my personal life, have versions that you can use with Teams. And in fact, 1Password, I ended up moving to them because they came out with a product for families. So I'm able to share passwords with my wife and my family that are necessary for things like, you know, getting into the Netflix account, right? Um, Those type of things. So I'll include links to those in the show notes as well. But you really got to think about, A, keeping track of these secrets and making sure you get the, the right reminders. Now, Mickey, you said one more thing. See, you just opened the door and floodgates to my brain exploding. And this one came in today's email just before our show, which I've entitled Dieter has left the building. So one of the fun things we'll do sometimes when we're, we're creating personas for labs and other things is we'll do names. And a good friend of the show, Richard Hunhausen, when we talk about the database professional, he calls him Dieter, Dieter the DBA. And so this actually came out of the SQL Server Central newsletter, which is run by a good friend of mine named Steve Jones, who uh, also works with Redgate. And uh, the title of this uh, post is, when one of your DBA colleagues leaves the company, what is your checklist? And this was another thing around that type of housekeeping, everything from key rotation, changing passwords, making sure everything's okay. Um, All those things that go into a professionally managed system using good DevOps practices, but often don't meet that typical top bar of things you're thinking about when you're building the system. So let me go back to your secrets discussion for a second, because I had a couple of comments I wanted to put there, um, which is you mentioned the fact that it's hard to make the argument for, for automating the, the, the spending the hours to potentially automate the secrets rotation. Um, which I, I kind of agree with you there, unless of course, but you know, 
as you and I both know, automation is king. And depending on how many secrets you're having to rotate and how long it takes to rotate those secrets, then ultimately you, that I, I just want to make sure our listeners understood you should make that argument for trying to automate it if you can, in my opinion. The less, the less manual stuff you have to touch like that, the better. And I do use one of those password managers that Brian mentioned. I won't say which one, just to try to protect my little bit of sanity. Because after Mickey's hack from December of 2019, um, I am rotating my passwords probably every six months now. And so I take about a day. Cause, and honestly, it takes a while. Because you look at all the different things that you're that, that you have subscriptions to and that you have to go in and change the password for and set up a new password and a different password for each one. So this whole, you know, managing your own, even your own personal secrets is a, can, can take a while. As far as the company checklist thing goes, I see that a lot with customers. We actually just had a, a, a talk with a customer a couple of months ago on an engagement where they were asking some things like, what should be on our checklist when we hire somebody? What should be in our checklist when somebody leaves? And they were asking, then they were getting to the, into the weeds of, well, if we disable them in AAD, does it automatically take them out of GitHub and then remove their access? And there's all kind of, of things that, that you need to make sure you're aware of. You need to make sure how your tools are going to interact with how you're trying to, when people leave your company. Yeah, it, it really, you know, goes into that whole thing that building software is hard, right? Building real functional solutions. And to be clear, what, you know, came to my mind as I was updating some of these systems was there's places where I knew there were APIs. There were places where I could have done some automation. The problem I ran into is that I'm dealing with the fact that I'm a little fish in this large enterprise helping them do work. And there often is that friction that is not technology, it's management. Getting programmatic access to a system where you could do some things. And so sometimes you really have to have, you know, what we say about DevOps, that organizational buy-in to what you're doing. And so sometimes you have to rate, you know, what is the importance, what's your level, how can you affect that change? And, you know, in our case, it came down to there was no way we were going to get buy-in to touch this central database system and, and manage the passwords, we were going to have to do it through the approved mechanism, which was to go to their tool, fill out the form and do it. And I think that's kind of the happy medium. But yes, depending upon the control and the budget you have, you know, you have to, to, to marry those two up. Well, I think there's a lot more we can talk about, but I think I'd like to have a, a follow up on this in a, with a different vein, because a lot of what we talked about here was the ops side of the house. And I think we should come back later and talk about more of the dev side because I think we could talk about source control, Git, and some other things. Absolutely. So, well, Mickey, I think it's about time to wrap up the show. Where can people find you? Well, if you want to find me, you can find me at my website at mickeygousset.com or on Twitter at mickey underscore gousset. You can always send me an email, mickeygousset at github.com. Or you can even check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash mickeygousset. And Brian, where can people find you? You can find me on my blog at blog.brianrandall.com. Twitter, I'm at Brian Randall. And just like Mickey, you can get me on email, brianr at mcwtech.com. Don't forget, you can find more about the show at HTTPS. WackWackDevOps.fm or email the show at DevOps.fm.
Well, everybody, thanks for listening. Be good humans. Bye, everybody.